The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It is September 14th, and the time is 4.06. And on behalf of the team here at, EO, uh, at WKNC and EOT by extension, I suppose, I would like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Nick Weaver. And I'm Marissa Jordan. Coming up, we've got Jake Winner's Snowverated. This week, he reviews the film What We Do in the Shadows. As per usual, Nick, Nick brings you his modest mouth review. This week, he reviewed the album Necro Nami Donkey Kong Kong Mekon. It's a tough one. It's a tough <laughs> yeah. One. It's Necro Nami Donkey Kong Mekon by <laughs> Goblin Word We Can't Say on the Radio. You'll find out more about that in the review. That's yeah, a mouthful. Yep. This week, Marissa interviews Paul Byrne. Is that right? Yes, Paul Byrne. Yeah, Paul Byrne, a planetary geologist here at NC State, about his research on volcanoes on Mercury. That sounds interesting. Uh, I hope we uh, get to hear a little bit from him. Some interesting stuff. Yes, it was incredibly interesting. All right. And then we'll have, or first rather, we'll have Colleen Canan Ferguson bringing you her legal podcast, Legal Work, where she talks about international students this week. Uh, I believe that is in reference to uh, one of the students who is now currently homeless after he was found with drugs in his possession on campus. That's Uh, definitely educational and interesting yeah so i think this episode is about uh warning international students about what rights they do and don't have on campus so that's interesting and i think that's really informative uh so yeah we'll have her piece coming up in just a second Listening to Legal Work, a bi weekly podcast offering legal advice to students recorded from the production room of WKNC 88.1 FM on the campus of North Carolina State University. My name is Colleen, your podcast manager at WKNC Legal Work. This podcast is my effort to help educate young adults like myself who may be misinformed or just plain confused about how the law works in specific cases. This week's topic is for international students attending NC State University. I sat down with an attorney from NC State University Student Legal Services to talk about the different statuses international students can occupy to stay in the United States after college, the ways in which international students can lose their visas or be deported, and some scams that typically target international students. My name is Huang Lam. I am an attorney at the University Student Legal Services at NC State. 
What rights do international students have while studying in the United States? They do have many rights,、uh, just like、uh, normal Americans. On the criminal side, for example, they have the right against unreasonable search and seizure, the right against self-incrimination, the right to an attorney if they are facing a charge that will, could lead to imprisonment. On the civil side,、uh, they have the right to sue for money damages. One thing that many international students don't know is that they cannot get arrested for not paying their owing money. So international students have to have valid visas to enter the United States. Once they're here, they are subject to、uh, supervision. By the schools they are attending, and the officials at those schools are obligated to inform U.S. immigration on any、uh, thing that might affect student statuses. And also, they if they violate their statuses, they can get deported. One thing that、uh, came up recently is、um, in December 2015, the U.S. Department of State initiated a policy that would revoke the. Visas of any、uh, non-immigrants, including international students, who get arrested for DWI, and we're talking about just arrest. It doesn't require conviction, so they go back five years. So the previous five years, any non-immigrant who has a DWI arrest can get his or her visa revoked.、Uh, along that line, an international student can be deported for、uh, committing or getting convicted of、uh, crimes in the United States. And also, if they register to vote or vote, and、uh, I guess this is a relevant issue、uh, given the campaign season we have now, they can get、uh, deported as well for that. So only U.S. citizens can vote in the United States. An international student may not register to vote and may not vote at all. And、uh, it's easy for U.S. immigration to detect any unlawful registration or any voting because、uh, anyone can go onto the the Board of Election website and check a person's name, and that person can be、uh, shown to have registered or voted. What happens to an international student if they are arrested or convicted of a crime? When、uh, an international student、uh, or any non-citizen defendant is arrested, local law enforcement agents work closely with U.S. federal immigration agents. And in fact, in many jails,、uh, usually there are U.S. immigration agents stationed in the jails themselves. And during the booking process, a non-citizen defendant. Might be interviewed and generally will will likely be interviewed by a federal immigration agent. If the agent determines that the crime the non-citizen defendant is charged is serious enough under immigration law, then the agent might place what we call a detainer on that non-citizen defendant's case, such that that defendant cannot be bonded out. And even when a criminal case is over, when a detainer is in place, that defendant still has to stay in jail for two additional days, so that the agent can determine whether he or she should in initiate、uh, deportation proceedings. Wow, so can international students work while in the United States? There are several ways that an international student can work during、uh, the, the student's time at school. The student can work up to twenty hours on campus. Is、uh, it applies to NC State and other university? And on campus means that the job has to be physically on campus, and the student has to be paid through the university payroll. During vacation or summertime, 
the student can work full time on campus. A student can also work off campus, but only with uh, the Office of International Services permission. During the, the time the, the student studies here, he or she can also work uh, like in an internship if it's required uh, by his or her major. After graduation, the student can do optional practical training, which allows him or her to work uh, from one year to three years. Uh, any student who is in science, technology, engineering, or mathematics field can work up to three years after graduation, and, and we call it STEM students. And any non-STEM student can work up to one year. There are rules on how the students may work, and unauthorized employment would cause could cause a student to lose uh, his status. And uh, we have seen several cases where the students have to travel abroad uh, in order to come back legally to the United States after he or she committed unauthorized employment, and the Office of International Services. Uh, uh, has to uh, note that and, and discipline the students. Can international students apply for social security cards and licenses, and how does that work? To get a social security card, the student needs to have a job, and uh, when he goes to the social security office, uh, he has to provide a, an offer letter from the employer, and, and that is uh, the way that a student can get a social security card. To get a driver license, uh, the student does not need to have a social security number, and, and sometimes DMV officials might not know this. The students need to provide uh, several immigration forms, such as the I-20, which is issued by the school itself, the I-94, confirming that the student legally entered the United States and her passport and visa, proof of the insurance, and proof of residency in, in North Carolina. If they're working, do international students have to pay American taxes then? They do have to pay taxes, and uh, although our office doesn't do uh, tax because it's a very specialized field, there is an office on NC State campus called uh, international employment and taxation. The students, uh, international students, have to go through that office before they can work. What are some of the scams you've seen targeting international students while working at University Student Legal? Last week, there was a student who came into my office and he received a phone call from someone pretending to be a U.S. immigration uh, officer. And uh, that person told him on the phone that he entered the United States without filling a required form. And as a result, he could be arrested or he could pay a fine of almost $1,700 to, to make his status uh, legal. And it was quite an elaborate scheme. The student was very scared and was told on the phone that he, or he could not contact anyone or make an, a phone call during that time with the purported agent on the phone. So the student went to buy two pre, three prepaid um, cards and, 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 and gave that person that information and, and lost that amount of money. So it was very unfortunate. Uh, students generally should know that immigration officials never call you on the phone and never ask for money on the phone. Almost all the time, communications are done through letters. And there are other scams that we have heard of, uh, including someone pretending to be an IRS agent. So again, uh, anyone who calls you on the phone, uh, most likely it is a scam.
What resources are available for international students on campus? So on campus, there is our office. We we do handle several immigration issues for students, and I can elaborate it、uh, later. We also have the Office of International Services, which is tasked of overseeing the students' statuses here at the university. And that office、um, has the power to revoke students' visas if they violate their statuses. And the Office of International Employment and Taxation, which helps students determine. What taxes they have to pay. Sometimes the students' countries and the United States have tax treaties such that the students might not have to pay the amount that an American citizen or green card holder or other non-citizens have to pay. What options does an international student have if they want to stay in the United States after graduating? There are many options. One is that we mentioned before the optional practical training, which allows the student to. Work from one year to three years. The students can also get their employers to apply for a non-immigrant work visa called H-1B, and H-1B allows the student to work up to six years in the United States. The employer might also apply for a green card for a student if the employer really likes her work. And there are other ways to get a green card too. One is through relatives.、Uh, I work on a lot of cases with、uh, students who are here and then fall in love with American citizens and they get. And those cases can go very quickly. Right now, it takes about three and a half months for the process to be completed. There's also the option of U.S. citizenship, and not many students know about the possibility of becoming a U.S. citizen through、uh, joining the U.S. military. So that a student with some、uh, with fluency in, in certain languages that the U.S. military needs can join the U.S. military and become a U.S. citizen within three months. It's really quick. I also work on several cases involving students who are、uh, afraid of going back to their countries because of their religion, political views. Ethnicity, membership in a particular social group, and the、uh, membership in a particular social group is a very broad category. It includes、uh, people who are gay, women who are forced into、uh, marriage against their wills in their countries. It can encompass、uh, many, many groups. I've also helped students who are from countries facing war or natural disasters,、uh, like Liberia. Uh, Nepal, uh, Syria, and they can get a, a special uh, uh, status called temporary protected status, which can be renewed.、Uh, that uh, would allow them to stay in the United States longer. Some students come here under the J visa, which is an exchange visitor visa being issued by the Department of State, and those students might be subject to、uh, the two-year home country physical presence requirement. Which means that once they finish their study, they have to go back to their countries for two years before they can come back to the United States. And what I do is I help them apply for waivers of that、uh, requirement. And to get that waiver, the J1、uh, visa holder would have to show that show one of the several ways. One is、uh, the his or her country would have to issue a no objection letter. Saying that we do not have any objection for this student、uh, staying in the United States, or if the student is afraid of going back to his or her country, which is kind of similar to asylum、uh, because of fear of persecution, 
that student can also apply for the waiver. Another way is if the U.S. government agency, uh, one of them is interested in, in getting this student to work for them, then this student can get the waiver that way too. And the last way is if a student has a spouse or child who is a U.S. citizen or a green card holder, and if the student has to go back to his or her country and that would cause hardship to the spouse or child, then uh, that student can try the waiver so that uh, he or she does not, does not have to go back. Could you talk some more about TPS? So to get uh, temporary protected status or TPS, um, the U.S. Uh, government has to designate that student's country before he or she can get TPS. And currently, there are certain countries uh, that have been designated for uh, TPS. Um, one is El Salvador, Guinea, Haiti, Honduras, Liberia, Nepal, Nicaragua, Sierra Leone, Somalia, uh, Sudan, South Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. So... If a student is from any of those countries, uh, he or she may be able to apply for TPS. And TPS uh, has some requirements on its own. The student has to apply at a certain time, so it's very, very important that the, the student uh, applies timely. Secondly, the student cannot have two or more misdemeanors conviction. One thing that I, I want to emphasize again is the voting. Is it might seem innocent, but even unintentional registration or voting could haunt a student's chance or damage a student's chance of staying in the United States permanently. Uh, so that is very important. I think many students need to know that the United States legal system is heavily based on the rule of law. So anything the student does might have a criminal repercussions, and that students should be careful. Even, uh, and another thing is that because U.S. immigration law is uh, based on federal law, and it defines offenses that can make somebody deportable in a way that even minor crimes under state law can lead to immigration consequences. So say a misdemeanor larceny in North Carolina potentially could cause a student to be deportable, even though it's a minor offense in, in North Carolina and a student would not likely get jail time for that. The student really has to be careful. Anytime that a student is charged with a criminal offense, the student should also make sure that he or she, first of all, gets an attorney. Secondly, the attorney needs to know immigration law or consult uh, with an immigration attorney. And, and, and those two areas of law have to be coordinated and, and work together for the benefit of the student. Uh, many criminal defense attorneys do not know immigration law and, and might not understand that something that might seem beneficial for the criminal case uh, context might not be so beneficial uh, in the immigration context. If you have any pressing legal concerns, you should contact a lawyer. But if you're just curious and want to know more about how the law works regarding a specific case, feel free to send me your topic suggestions to podcast at wknc.org. My name is Colleen Keenan-Ferguson, and when I'm not making podcasts for WKNC, I'm listening to WKNC 88.1 FM.
I love geology. I have been interested in the rock cycle, volcanism, and plate tectonics ever since fourth grade. Last semester, I coded into the geology major here at NC State, and I've been thrilled with my studies ever since. So when I was going through the Eye on the Triangle email account, I was excited to find an article about Dr. Paul Byrne's work on volcanism and planetary geology on Mercury. I wanted to find out more about what exactly planetary geology is, so I had Dr. Byrne come into the studio here at WKNC and tell me more about the subject and his research. Hi, my name is Paul Byrne. I am a planetary geologist. Uh, I've been here at State for a year. I work in the Department of Marine, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. Um, and currently I teach two classes. I teach structural geology, which is faults and earthquakes and that sort of stuff. And I teach planetary geology. There's a first class that we've, we're doing for the first time this semester. In my experience so far as a geology major here at NC State, a lot of people are unfamiliar with the Marine, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences Department. Can you tell us a little about the department and what kinds of research are being conducted right now? Sure. So I think I, I totally uh, sympathize with the fact that maybe a lot of folks don't kind of know what geology is. And the reason is that geology often isn't taught at high school. Um, so I'm Irish and in, in Ireland, we don't do geology in secondary school. And, you know, we'll come across a bit of it about, say, physical geography, why the landscape might look the way it does. But it means that when you get into university, often students have no idea that it's even an option for them. Um, they certainly don't know that they've been looking at this their whole lives in terms of where we get our oil from or how we understand volcano hazards. It turns out that geology affects us on every level, on every day. Um, but in terms of being able to see it, that as a, a viable career choice, a lot of folks don't appreciate that, that they don't know it's there. And so in the university, rather than us having a geology department, we have the Department of Marine, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. And the benefit of a department as varied as that is that you have people, geology and geoscience and earth science cross all these divides. Um, and you're going to find a breadth of research that can include things like coastal erosion, uh, water quality, uh, storm prediction. We have a very large meteorology group there that will make predictions for, say, hurricane activity. And then you have all the earth or geoscience where you're looking at the rocks and what the rocks are doing, everything from how the landscape evolves to ultimately, in my case, what happens on other planets. Now, I read in that article that I found on the NC State website that you did some exciting research about geology on Mercury. Could you explain that to us? The NASA Messenger mission got to Mercury. Uh, it visited it three times in 2008, 2009. And 2011, it made orbit. for the. F it was the first time that we as a species have ever orbited anything at Mercury. It turns out it's really hard to get there. It's very expensive. It takes a long time. And the Messenger spacecraft orbited Mercury for four years. And in that time, it revolutionized our understanding of this planet that otherwise is really hard to understand. It's quite close to the sun, so it's really hard to point telescopes at it. So we really didn't know that much about it. We'd only visited there briefly in the 70s, and even then we just flew past with spacecraft. We didn't orbit it. So Mercury, or understanding any planet like that, gives us uh, the ability to understand, say, things like how volcanoes behave in general. Right? We're not just limited to the opportunities to go visit volcanoes on Earth. Now, we have a much better understanding of volcanoes on Earth because we can go to them, we can photograph them, we have historical records of them. But understanding how they might behave in general or in ways that we don't see on Earth, you have to go to other worlds. You've got to go at least look at other worlds. And one of the things that we'd noticed early on when we got to Mercury is that a lot of the very largest lava deposits, what we would call uh, smooth plains, on Earth we would call them large igneous provinces. They're basically enormous expanses of lava. And these things can cover, you know, almost a quarter of the planet's surface. These things are humongous. Uh, certainly nothing that scale exists on Earth anymore. We think it might have back in the day, but it's been long since lost through erosion and, and we have plate tectonics on Earth. And all that sort of stuff means that we get a much better record of what early Earth looked like on other worlds.
And what we noticed among some of these big, smooth plains areas on Mercury is that they were all kind of the same age. Super old, but all kind of around the same age. Their age was around 3.7 billion years ago. That's a really long time ago, and there is virtually nothing left in terms of landscape on Earth that old. It just gets recycled, it gets lost. And so a question that we had was, well, is this the case? So we see two or three really big regions of Mercury that are about 3.7 billion years old. Whereas on Earth, you get volcanism today that's constantly resurfacing places. You know, we have these huge volcanic centers in the ocean floors. On uh, Mars and on Venus, and even on the Moon, we've got really huge expanses of lava, but they're all much younger than that. So we were kind of thinking, well, why are they all the same age for Mercury? So what we did in this study was we identified a bunch of smaller but still humongous lava deposits across the surface of Mercury. And then we use a variety of techniques we have by looking at the images we have for the surface of the planet. We look at the number of craters and then we can do some analyses and we can figure out an age on the basis of the number of craters in an area. And sure enough, we found that all of these areas are around the same age. We couldn't find a single one younger than around three and a half billion years old. And that's weird because... On Mars, we know that some of the units are much younger. Maybe they're a few hundred million years old. They're still super old, but they're much younger, relatively speaking. On Venus, same deal. On Earth, same deal. Even on the Moon, some of those flows are not that old. But on Mercury, it looks like everything shut down very early on in the planet's life. And that was something that we thought we might find, but then we had to go and explain why that would be. And it turns out that separately, a lot of the work we've been doing with the Messenger project is understanding how much Mercury has shrunk, because it turns out that Mercury has shrunk. Uh, in fact, all planets shrink. Uh, as they get older, they lose heat, and as they lose heat, they cool down. It's why it's easier to open a door on a cold day than a warm day, right? Because on a warm day, it swells up. It gets, uh, it contracts and cool when it cools down, and that's what Mercury has done. And separate research we publish over the last few years has allowed us to estimate how much the planet has shrunk. And what we think has happened uh, that's unique about Mercury that you don't see in these other planets I've talked about is that Mercury began to contract around about that time, around three and a half to four billion years ago. It hit some threshold, it got cool. And as it started to cool down, it squeezed itself shut. And by squeezing shut, especially the upper surface, you shut off all that magnetism. All that lava can't get to the surface anymore. And so by around three and a half billion years old, you stopped a process that on other worlds, including Earth, continue into the much more recent. So that was an interesting insight, and you don't see that on any other planets in the solar system, not any ro rocky bodies at all. And, and that was an interesting thing to discover about a world that we really didn't know very much about five years ago. So you mentioned that Mercury is different geologically than Mars, Venus, and Earth. What are these differences? Okay, so, so there is a pretty big difference. One of the primary differences is this age of which lava you know, activity shuts down. We think we know why, and there is something unique about Mercury that we don't quite see anywhere else. If you get a big knife and you slice through earth which thankfully you can't do you'd find that it has a huge interior portion called the mantle which is solid rock but on geological time scales it flows it's kind of what helps stuff convect and move inside earth and ultimately helps drive plate tectonics the mantle is about half of the radius of earth and underneath the mantle is the core there's the outer liquid bit that's where we get our magnetic field and there's the inner solid bit but they're about 50 50 in terms of radius we don't know for sure what the interior of Mars or Venus looks like, but we think it's probably similar. It's comparable. But we think that if you were to cut through Mercury, about 85% of the radius is core. There's a tiny amount of mantle, which is our rocky material planets are made of. Now, the consequence of that is that the stuff that keeps a planet warm after it forms is a lot of that is radioactive decay that generates heat. That's what keeps Earth warm. Most of what our heat comes from is from radioactive decay. It's probably what's keeping some of the interior of Mars warm. It's probably what's keeping some of the interior of Venus warm. Um, 
because there isn't as much of this stuff, this rocky mantle inside Mercury, it doesn't have the ability to keep itself warm for as long. And so what that means is it takes much less time for Mercury to basically get rid of most of its heat. Sure, it's still hot on the inside. In fact, it has to be. We know the core is still liquid because it has its own magnetic field, unlike any other planet in the inner solar system. But it's not enough heat to keep volcanism going to offset the effect of this cooling and contracting that's going on. And so we think we can explain why there's such a difference in Mercury than the other bodies. And it's because Mercury's core is huge and its mantle is very, very thin. You can almost think of Mercury as a giant ball of molten iron spinning through space, wrapped in a blanket of rock. So obviously planetary geology sounds really cool, especially from like a sci-fi perspective. But what conclusions is the field of planetary geology helping scientists to come to? But in general, understanding what we're seeing on Mercury is a process we use called comparative planetology. It's a very powerful tool. And what it basically says is, we can understand the surfaces and the processes and the landforms on other planets by comparing them with Earth. Because Earth is the place like with our volcanoes, we can get to them, we can hike them, we can measure them. And so we use comparative planetology to try and understand what other planets look like, how they look the way they do, and what processes led to them. The benefit of this is two ways. And the other thing, the, the, the flip side of this, is that, like I said earlier, we lose a lot of these landforms on Earth, things that get eroded through plate tectonics erosion but they survive on other worlds, which means we can look to other planets and we can see ancient Earth as it was before our atmosphere kicked in, before plate tectonics kicked in, before life evolved. And we can look to Mercury, we can look to the far side of the moon, we can look to parts of Mars, and we think we're seeing ancient Earth there. We might even be able to look at parts of Venus and see potentially what future Earth will look like. And so we get this ability to look into deep time by looking at other planets. And so not only are we now in a position where we can start answering these questions about Mercury, but we can begin to wonder, well, what did ancient Earth look like four billion years ago? And that, I think, is one of the most exciting things we can do with comparative planetology. And that's where a lot of my research focuses going forward. Well, thank you. That was incredibly interesting. I can't wait to hear more about the field of planetary geology as well as comparative planetary geology in the future. I'd like to thank you for your time, Dr. Byrne. This has been Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. So, today's album is a little awkward to describe. It came out a few weeks ago, and it's by an artist that I really like, whose name is... Explicit. The album is Necronama Donkey Kongamicon. The band, well, that's a little bit harder to say. Actually, it's a lot easier to say, I just can't say it on air. For the purposes of today's review, I'm going to refer to them as Goblin Rooster... Just mentally replace the word rooster with the other word for male chicken, and that's the band. So from now on, I will refer to them as Goblin Rooster. Even though that is not their actual name, that is what we're going to call them for legal purposes. Now, for those of you that tune into this show regularly, all three of you perhaps, you may have heard me mention this band before in my review of Rob Crow's Gloomy Palace earlier this year. That's because Rob Crow is the mastermind behind this band as well, among many others. To name a few, there's Pinback, Goblin Rooster, mm, Rob Crow, Rob Crow's Gloomy Palace, Prefuse 73, Snot Nose, Optagonally Yours, Heavy Vegetable Thingy, Creedle Physics, Remote Action Sequence Project, Drive Like Jehu, and many, many more. 
I love this man dearly for the work he's done, not in small part including Pinback, but I've said all this before. What I haven't said is that Goblin Rooster eh, is a ridiculously goofy yet awesome metal project led by Rob Crow under the guise of Lord Phallus. The whole band dons these black cloaks when they perform, and it's great. That pretty much tells you all that you need to know about who this band is. Now, onto their music. Goblin Rooster is described by some as being metal, uh, but I would say instead it's more along the lines of heavy indie rock or just hard rock. Yes, the telltale insane distortion on the guitars is there, but the vocals and the mastering on their albums is still that of an indie rock band. Plus, Rob Crow really doesn't sound like a metal singer. At all. I don't think he's trying to either. I wouldn't like it as much if he did. Anyone can grunt obscenely with some practice. What Crow does takes a lot more talent and appreciation. It would be a shame to hide all of that for the sake of sounding more like a generic metal band. The man's got an incredible range, as you would have to to be able to keep up with so many different musical projects. Anyways, yes, Goblin Rooster is kind of metal, but not so metal that the average rock fan won't be able to enjoy them. As for this album in particular, it's a very average mix for Goblin Rooster. Not too different from their previous work, not too similar. A safe addition to their catalog. Necronama Donkey Kongamicon features the usual metal guitar instrumentation with deep, aggressive distortion and headbanging strum patterns. If you've listened to any metal at all, you probably know what I'm talking about. It goes something like Yeah, you get the picture. That sort of thing. But Goblin Rooster takes their own spin on it. This sort of instrumentation isn't the main focus of their music, no. They recognize that this is just one facet of hard rock slash metal, not the main focus of a song. Unlike some bands, Goblin Rooster takes this generic guitar pattern and splices it with atypical song structure and tempo, akin to a metal song with the structure of a math rock song. It's hard to properly explain if you're not familiar with these genres, but let me try to anyways. Take your average metal song, say 4-4 signature, typical BPM around 40 to 50. The guitar for a more generic song in the drone metal category would have a four-strum rush on every beat per measure, topping it off with a light cymbal crash. Not Goblin Rooster. Goblin Rooster takes your precious 4-4 time signature, cuts out guitar for the second beat, and does an eight-chord strum arpeggio for the next two and a half beats, diverting the time signature to 3-4 for the next two measures, and then repeats this phrase five times before moving on to something wildly different for the chorus. I love it. It is insane. So maybe that does an alright job of explaining exactly how unique Goblin Rooster's guitar is. As I said before, too, Rob Crow's vocals are also pretty unique. His voice alone is enough to set him apart from other bands for me, but it goes farther than that. Crow is not only exceptionally skilled at a rhythmic complementation, he's a master of self-harmonizing. On one of his tracks, I detected around seven or eight double tracks of Crow's voice complementing his main vocals. For those of you that have never tried to sing alongside recordings of themselves, this isn't just technically difficult, it's psychologically difficult. Kurt Cobain is said to have hated this technique so much that he would leave the studio for days at a time in between double-tracking sessions. No one really loves the sound of their voice, and having to sing alongside it makes all of your own flaws all the more glaring to you. Now, most people only do this twice for basic recording purposes just to give the track a little extra oomph. In songs where the lead singer needs to sound like multiple people singing the chorus, usually around four double-tracks is all it takes. But Crow was like, nah, I'ma do eight. That's crazy. I've droned on about the technical side long enough. I think what everyone really wants to know is, 
do I think Necronama Donkey Kong and the Con is worth listening to? Absolutely, yes. If you have any appreciation for math rock and metal or just hard rock in general, you should give this album and Goblin Rooster as a whole a good hard listen. Of course, I'm quite biased in my love of Rob Crow, but hey, it's only like 36 minutes long. Give it a shot. For my final rating on a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give Necronama Donkey Kong and the Con a solid 4. I think it's a really enjoyable piece from one of my favorite artists, and I'm not even that into hard rock or metal. It features intelligent composition, instrumentation, and performance. That should be enough for someone who particularly enjoys either genre to at least appreciate the work that went into it. The album is once again Necronama Donkey Kong and the Con. The band, which I had been referring to as Goblin Rooster, yet again, I will mention, has an obscene name that I can't say on air. Just mentally replace Rooster with the other word for male chicken and you've got the artist's name. That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Linz, Klesk, Floatstar, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in a review request by emailing publicaffairs at wknc.org or by sending a tweet to at wknc underscore EOT. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time. Hello, this is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowverated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film What We Do in the Shadows. What We Do in the Shadows is a mockumentary format movie set in New Zealand. And if you instantly thought of Jermaine Clement and Flight of the Concords, you are spot on because Jermaine Clement was one of the two directors that worked on this film, the other being the well-known New Zealand director Taika Waititi, who also acts in the movie. This movie is absolutely enjoyable. I loved how they applied the mockumentary format to a scenario in which I thought it would never work, and it really did work very well. Uh, if you like The Office, especially the British version, then you will definitely like this film. It has the typical dry humor expected from both British and New Zealand comedies. There are slight differences between the styles in both countries, but they are very similar. And not only did this film do mockumentary well, they bent what people think of as a vampire film. They humanized the undead and did it well. Usually vampires seem all-powerful and like they have almost no flaws. Of course, all vampire movies have their conflicts, but a lot of the major conflicts come from interactions with mortals. So it's interesting to see a bunch of unconfident and awkward vampires sort of working their way through their lives. The movie did a great job of making sure that the audience knew it was a mockumentary, as most of the films of that genre do. Because the genre is so common in the past decade or two, there have been established filming styles that show the audience that it is in fact a mockumentary. The awkward interactions with camera crews you can't hear the voices of, and as well as the cameras just falling at points. This is a useful way to add realism to the mockumentary, because any normal film would just do a retake, so in a film that's mocking a documentary, there needs to be shots that aren't exactly perfect, because a documentary will almost always have shots that aren't perfect. Mockumentaries have been around for quite a while, and it's interesting to see the differences in old mockumentaries versus new ones. Spinal Tap is a major one that comes to mind, but Wayne's World could almost be considered a mockumentary. And if you haven't seen either of those films and uh, you like this one, you should definitely check them out. Another interesting thing about this movie is that it kind of feels oddly long, yet it's pretty short, running at an hour and a half. It doesn't really sound short, but in terms of like the story, it doesn't seem like much happens. It seems like they had a lot they could have built upon. Because many of the recent mockumentaries have been TV shows, and this is filmed so similar to them, it feels like it should cut off and move to another episode at about 20 minutes or so. 
This is sort of a weird feeling to have in the middle of a movie, but it's definitely not a problem because if you haven't watched a lot of popular mockumentaries like The Office and Parks and Rec, it probably wouldn't even feel odd to you at all. I really enjoyed what we do in the shadows. I thought it was both a fresh take on mockumentaries, extending them to the ridiculous, and a silly take on vampire movies. It was funny throughout with no joke ever missing completely, and I'm sure I missed some subtleties on the first watching that would make the movie even better. Jermaine Clement has a history with the mockumentary form of filmmaking, and it shows in how well the film fit that style. When trying to make a film that is within a specific genre that has been done very well beforehand, it's important to nail the aspects that make that kind of film what it is, but also not to copy those who have come before you and add new things to the genre. This film felt familiar, but different, which means that they managed to do this perfectly. I'm going to give this film a 4 out of 5. Uh, there were some things that I thought could have been changed in the plot to make more sense, but really that's not the point of a film like this. For the most part in comedies, you have to let go of the plot and consistency and look at the jokes themselves. Of course, the plot is pretty consistent and there's not really that many problems. So it's, once again, not really a huge problem. And if you like this movie, be sure to be on the lookout in the not-so-distant future for the sequel, which has been announced and has the title We're Wolves, which is the We Are version of We're, making it a play on words. It's a pretty, pretty good title. Um, Taika Waititi is currently working on the next Thor movie, so it'll probably be a little bit over a year um, until he even begins working on that film, though I'm definitely looking forward to that. What We Do in the Shadows is available from multiple retailers and renters online. If you want to let me know that you liked my review or have any comments or suggestions for films you'd like to hear my take on, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. Or if you want to call in, feel free to at 919-515-2400. And again, that's 919-515-2400. And you can call in during the show and we could chat if you'd like to. Uh, so thanks for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snowverated. I'm Jake Winters, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. The time is 447, and I am Marissa Jordan. And I'm Nick Weaver. For the weather this week, for most of the week, it's going to be partly cloudy with scattered thunderstorms Sunday through Tuesday. Light showers on Wednesday during the morning. For Thursday, we're looking at a high of 88 and a low of 67, with a high of 84 and a low of 66 on Friday. And for Saturday, a high of 86 and a low of 68. Sunday, we'll have a high of 88, a low of 70. Monday, a high of 87, a low of 68. Tuesday, a high of 85, a low of 64. And Wednesday, a high of 84, a low of 63. And for those of you who might be listening from across the pond for whatever reason, that is all in Fahrenheit. So, next we have On This Day in History. Uh, in 1901, President William McKinley dies from a gunshot wound. In 1927, the dancer Isadora Duncan is killed in a car accident. And in 1959, a Soviet probe reaches the moon. Soviet? I didn't know they went to the moon. Russia has a flag up there? Oh, they could have kicked ours over easily. <laughs> How do we know it's still there? Do we have, like, telescopes on this? Maybe, maybe that's the real start of the Cold War. Well, either way, for community calendar, the NCSU Libraries is proud to be a presenting partner in Experiencing King at NC State University, a campus-wide weekend of public events and exhibits September 16th through 17th. Incorporating stage, drama, documentary film, audio archives, contemporary art, 
and Immersive Technologies, the program celebrates the civil rights vision of Dr. Martin Luther King as it played out in North Carolina. The subject of innovative digital humanities research by NC State professors Dr. Jason Miller and Dr. Victoria J. Gallagher. Experiencing King is co-presented by the NCSU Libraries, NC State Live, the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, also known as CHAS, and the African American Cultural Center. Crabtree Valley Mall will be holding a street fest this Saturday, the 17th, from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. There will be live music from Crush and Coconut Groove, food and vendors, a kids' play area, and a fashion show. All proceeds go to Sassafras All Kids Playground. Huh, Sassafras. Lovely name. SparkCon, an interdisciplinary creativity art and design festival produced by the nonprofit creativity incubator Visual Art Exchange in Raleigh, NC, will be held from September 15th through 18th on Fayetteville Street and features ArtSpark, where artists create chalk art on the ground on Fayetteville Street, dance performances, live music, theatrical performances, vendors, food, yum, and so much more. Marissa, you've uh, you've been there before, right? Yeah, I've actually uh, done ArtSpark for like the past four years or so on and off. It's really, um, it's a really fun experience. Like you get to create art uh, with chalk on the street and there's just p- people like hundreds of people on Fayetteville Street all covered in chalk and dirt as well as um, there's the vendors are amazing. And even my my dance teacher from high school performed there and some of my friends did, too. It was, it's just a great uh, it's a great uh, con. Well, that's pretty cool. You guys did uh, chalk art, right? Yeah, it's chalk art on the street. And what did you what did you draw? One year we drew a mouse in a car, and last year I can't remember exactly what it was. But my friend who designs this, she has very, um, very psychedelic themed art, and she actually won an award. I think she drew her like signature creatures. She makes these kind of like bug-like creatures. It's really cool. Lots of cool art you see. All right, that's cool. That looks like it's about the end of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know at publicaffairs at wknc.org. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC from 4 to 5. I'd like to thank our contributors, Jake Winters and Colleen Kennan-Ferguson. For Eye on the Triangle, I am Nick Weaver. And I am Marissa Jordan, wishing you all a great Wednesday afternoon.